All right. We continue our study in the uh, book of Isaiah. And um, in today's lesson in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, we're going to see the nation of Israel, excuse me, the nation of Judah and Jerusalem uh, in today's lesson is um, actually going to be led by King Ahaz, who's a very deceitful character, very deceitful, just like George in this episode. Deceit. All right. We've all heard uh, all our life, our Christian life, <coughs> brought up in the church, believed in the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, but did you know that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, predicted it over 700 years before? And if you knew of that, if you knew that Isaiah had predicted it, uh, did you know that the, the, uh, the context of Isaiah's prophecy of the, of the virgin birth uh, had to do with King Ahaz in today's lesson? First, it's important, uh, why is the virgin birth, why do we consider it an important part of the gospel and a basic belief of Christianity? Well, believe it or not, over I, look, I saw a Barna poll, you know, they do these Christian polls, and over half of the ministers, not professing Christians, but the, over half of the ministers in the church, traditional churches across America, said they did not believe in the literal virgin birth birth, which is kind of shocking. I mean, I would have thought, man, these are preachers. they got to sign a contract or something saying they believe in this stuff, right, the basics. But uh, they don't. And so you wonder why. Well, they're just like King Ahaz in today's story. It's not that they're not religious. They are religious. They do have a religion. They call it Christianity, and they try to follow it, and they teach it, what have you. And they believe in God, some kind of God. They believe in God, but not the God of the Bible. And so they find it very difficult to believe to that, that something that's supernatural like this, the virgin birth, I mean, how could that be? That goes against all nature. Well, yeah, that's what supernatural is. That's what the miraculous is. But they struggle with that because it goes against all the natural laws that they believe in. So why is it so important to the gospel, and, and why is it contemporary to the church today? Because uh, the woman Mary, who was with child when she was pregnant, the text in the gospel say that she was a virgin, and that she became impregnated by the Holy Spirit. It says that the woman Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon her miraculously, which, of course, we call uh, the incarnation. We, we call his birth, uh, his miraculous birth, the incarnation. When God took on the flesh, that's what that literally means, the incarnation. So Jesus then was born of a woman and therefore 100% human. 100% man. But he's also born of God as his literal father, and so he's 100% God as well. So the virgin birth goes to the very nature of Jesus Christ, 
who is Jesus. He's the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. Without the virgin birth, that doesn't work. And if Jesus had been just a mere mortal man, like a lot of these ministers think, he wouldn't have been able to make the perfect sacrifice of infinite value, i.e., we would not have an atonement for sin. <laughs> this would just be another world religion that you try to do this and don't do that in order to be good enough to somehow um, make the cut on the scales of justice or whatever the, you know, karma or whatever these other religions call it. So, it's, so it is very important to our belief system, to biblical Christianity. And uh, today's lesson, we, we see that uh, not only do the Gospels uh, believe and, and portray Jesus as being born miraculously like this through the virgin birth, but also the prophets in the Old Testament predicted it, as I said, 700 years before. And the New Testament authors, uh, at the time, I imagine they struggle as, in the time of Isaiah, struggle as to what the prophecy meant, and that's why it's great for us to have the New Testament confirm exactly what these prophecies mean. So if you look at Matthew 1, if you have your Bible or electronic device, you turn in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 21 and 23, we read, uh, that, the, that the angel told uh, Mary that she would bear a son and she'd call his name Jesus, which is an appropriate name because it means Savior, or he who saves. And call him Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. You know, so a great name for our Savior. Now all this took place, verse 22, uh, the author, Matthew, tells us that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. All this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, the prophet said, wrote in Isaiah 7.14, today's lesson, Behold, the virgin shall be in the future with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means, translated means, God with us. Now the first thing you might be asking is, I always wondered why, if his name was Jesus, why does the prophet say, it says he'll be called that. In other words, it'll be a title. It'll be who he is, not his actual name. It'll be who he is. And of course, what a great title, God with us, right? And so you see the deity of Christ right there in his name. And Joseph arose in, from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord said. So uh, we have it confirmed by the New Testament authors, Luke also, that Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7, uh, in today's lesson, literally uh, meant that Jesus would be born, the Savior, the Messiah, would be born of the Virgin Mary. So going back now to uh, Isaiah chapter 7, uh, what we have now in Isaiah 7, last week we saw when Isaiah was called by God to the ministry. God let him see a view of the glory of heaven, saw the glory of God on his throne in heaven, 
And God called him to go and deliver a message to Judah, to Jerusalem. And it came about in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, we read, it came about in the days of Ahaz. So Ahaz is going to be the new king. Remember in chapter 6, good king Uzziah had just died. And so Ahaz, his son, became king. Now this is a watershed moment in the history of Jerusalem. A watershed moment, if you know what that means. I, I looked it up. A watershed literally is a divide, a natural divide that causes water to go one way or another, quite often dividing a river and, and sending it in two different directions or making, making it reroute the river, right? So uh, the term a watershed moment came to mean a critical turning point in history, an important historical change. I looked up some of the watershed moments uh, in American history, and they listed 10 big ones. Uh, Lincoln's assassination, Louisiana Purchase, the atomic bomb, the Vietnam War, the death of bin Laden, Kennedy assassination, the American Revolution, the American Civil War, 9-11, the Apollo 11 moon landing. These are all watershed moments that redirected the country. Uh, in world history, I looked look that up too, watershed moments, for instance, the Russian Revolution, the steam engine, the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand that started World War I, the Black Plague which killed a third of Europe and two-thirds of China in 1334, the French Revolution, the smallpox vaccine, smallpox by the way had killed 500 million people before they got the vaccine going. The printing press, the invention of the printing press, uh, Martin Luther in 1517, the Reformation. Uh, here's one I didn't know. In 1884, at the Berlin Conference, all the European nations got together and divided up the continent of Africa. That's how that ended up. And <laughs> they've literally made a deal between themselves. Okay, France, you get Northern Africa and Algeria and Libya, and England gets uh, Kenya and what have you, <laughs> and Belgium gets the Congo. I mean, isn't that amazing? And then, what do you think number one? That's that was. What do you think number one is? Watershed moment in the history of the world. The birth of Christ. Exactly. Isn't that great? And and that's in a, from a, a secular. Um, deal on the on the internet, you know, just uh, everybody, even if they don't believe in him, they realize that the birth of Christ changed the world. It was that great watershed moment. So this is a great watershed moment in the history of Jerusalem, except in the wrong way. <laughs> uh, his, Ahaz's father and his grandfather had been good kings in God's eyes. And you can see this uh, if you want to scribble it down in your margin, in 2 Kings chapter 16, you can see, read about the historical part of King Ahaz. And we see that his uh, father and grandfather had been good kings, godly kings, and they had led Jerusalem in the right direction and done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So they were on the right track. And then, of course, they... Uh, went home to heaven, and 
their son, Ahaz, became king here in chapter 7. And if you read in 2 Kings 16, you'll see that this is a watershed moment. He takes them in the opposite direction. He is an evil person who goes against everything that is godly, and he leads Jerusalem and Judea, the people uh, there, in the wrong direction. How bad was he? He was so bad that not only did he practice idolatry, but also infant sacrifice. He even sacrificed his own son on a pagan altar. Now that's bad. <laughs> this is a bad guy, King Ahaz. So this is a watershed moment. So God is always aware of everything that's going on. And so what does God do? God raises up his prophet Isaiah, as we saw last week in chapter 6, and calls Isaiah to go to Jerusalem to speak to Ahaz and to the people. And so Ahaz, God knew what kind of man he was, and he knew that he lived according to all the abominations of all the evil nations around them and all their pagan idolatry. Uh, therefore, God raised up Isaiah at this crisis moment to go into Jerusalem and warn the people and predict what the future held if they continued, if they went on that path. So a little uh, history uh, just so you can know the context of what's going on here, uh, you're all aware of the, the exodus uh, going way back to about 1440 B.C. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and God did all those miracles to get them out of there and then you know, parted the Red Sea, took care of them in the wilderness, took them to the promised land. Then Moses died. Joshua took them in. Took him in uh, got rid of the Canaanites, took the promised land. They settled down there. And after about 300 years, you can see, of history in the book of Judges, the people say, we need a king. And, of course, God says, you don't need a king. I'm your king. They said, no, we need a king. We need a standing army. We need, you know, this, that, and the other. We need a great leader. And so God says, okay, let's see how that works. And, of course, when God does that, that never works. They're going to experience how bad that is. And, and uh, at the time, Samuel had told them. And he said, you know what's going to happen? He, this king you, is going to draft your sons and daughters into the military, and they're all going to be slaughtered you know, from, for his ambitions, and he's going to tax you with high taxation, and on and on and on. And so uh, you have the three kings that are so well known. You've got Saul and then David and then Solomon. Solomon started out, had a great ministry. The Lord was a great man, great king, richest man on earth. Uh, asked for God's wisdom, was given God's wisdom. But he ended not well. Uh, here's a lesson. You know, all of us who are starting to get up there in age, make sure you end well. Solomon did not end well. Uh, he had brought in all these princesses, you know, <laughs> Uh, that uh, he had a woman problem, I guess you could say. He was a womanizer, and he brought them all in under the guise of uh, making uh, these peace treaties of all the foreign nations. They brought their religions with them. 
all their pagan idolatry with them, and it corrupted Israel. And so God said to Solomon, because you've done this, once you die, there's going to be a revolution here, and the nation's going to be split because of what you've done. And so sure enough, Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam is a real jerk, and nobody likes him, and he raises taxes. He does the opposite of everything that he should be doing. And so this other guy named Jeroboam steps up, a, a uh, very arrogant, uh, powerful leader amongst the people, and he leads kind of a civil war, except there's no fighting. But people basically say, okay, the northern ten tribes are going with Jeroboam, and Judah and Benjamin are going to stay here and form the nation of Judah. And so you have the split, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so in today's lesson, uh, we see that situation uh, that uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, are the bad guys. They had evil kings from the, every single one of them was evil. The, most of the southern kings were godly men, with the exception, of course, of Ahaz and a few others. Um, but they became rival nations. And in today's lesson, Israel is either even going to be in league with Syria and attack Jerusalem. And so that's the situation. Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria is the dominant nation in the Middle East, the whole Middle East. And they have designs on Egypt. That's the richest nation. So what's between Egypt and Assyria? Assyria is up there where Iraq is today. You've got the whole Middle East. You've got Syria, Lebanon, which was then Phoenicia, and Israel. And so you know that army of Assyria is going to be coming through the Middle East, right? Well, those Middle Eastern nations were smart enough to say, if we can buy these guys off, we won't be conquered and subjugated. You know, we can stay, remain an independent nation. And so that's what they did. They paid tribute money. And Assyria left them alone. But in today's lesson, we'll see that the kings of Syria and Israel, Syria, again, make a distinction between Syria and Assyria, but the kings of Syria and Israel formed a union and asked Judah to come with them to fight against Assyria. They thought, if we can get these three nations together, we can stand up against them and not have to pay them all this money. So King Ahaz, instead of doing that, he actually sent his ambassador to Assyria. Now, this is like, if you look at Judah and, and Israel and Syria, they're like three mice that are feuding. And one of the mice calls out to the cat for help. <laughs> right? And so uh, Ahaz is going to call out, send an ambassador to Assyria and ask for help against these two nations that are coming against him. And that's a really bad idea because all it's going to do is end up everybody's going to get wiped out. Assyria is going to get just what you think. They're going to come and then not go away. <laughs> and so they're, it's going to be trouble. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and, to say, don't, don't 
go to Assyria. Don't ask them for help. Ask me, the Lord your God, for help. Trust me. I will not let Jerusalem fall. That's, that's the context of today's lesson. Don't do that. Don't go against the Lord your God. Come to me. Humble yourself and admit your sin and ask God for help. That's Isaiah's message to King Ahaz in today's lesson. Well, in his arrogance and his defiance, he's going to give a kind of a self-righteous, pious response that's really deceitful. He's going to say, oh, uh, no, I don't want to test God or I don't want to bother God or anything like that. Yeah, right. What he really means is, no, I've already made a deal with Assyria, this pagan, evil, idolatrous warrior nation. I'm trusting them instead of the Lord. And so you know that's not going to go well at all. And so let's look at the story. When Ahaz... Uh, turns him down, this is the context, this is where God tells Isaiah to tell him, just ask me for a sign. If you don't think I can help you, uh, I tell you what, just ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, no, I'm, I'm not going to test God, I'm not going to bother him. Or, and so what happens, God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. A virgin shall be with child. And when he says you, it's plural. I'm going to give Judah, I'm going to give Jerusalem, I'm going to give the Jewish people a sign. And it's in the future. And what he's saying is the, the sign that they should have trusted God is that the virgin will be with child. The virgin birth, the coming of the Messiah, how he's born, the incarnation, God is going to come in the flesh. That's the sign that God's going to give them because of their national disobedience. And so it had both a near view, that, that prediction, that prophecy, and a much further view that would occur over 700 years later with the birth of Christ. And uh, that's what's going on here. Most of the prophecy in the Old Testament, by the way, has both a near view and a far view. Far view. If you look at all the prophecies that David makes in the Psalms, all of his have a near view that applies to him, but also a further view that uh, applies to Christ. All right, so uh, we'll pick it up here in chapter 7, Isaiah 7. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, as I said before, uh, that the bad kings uh, of Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the king of Ramadia, or king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So they got together because Ahaz wouldn't unite with them. They said, we're going to bump him off so we won't get hit from both sides, and then we'll go fight Assyria. And when it was reported to the house of David, to Ahaz, saying the Arameans, which is the Syrians, have camped in Ephraim, that's just north of there, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They had great fear. These two great armies, both of them by themselves are bigger than we are, have come and they're going to attack Jerusalem. Knowing this, the fear they had, the Lord said to Isaiah, this is, God takes the initiative. Notice that. Whenever we're in trouble, whenever we need his help, he's always there. And God takes the initiative. We might not take his help. We might not humble ourselves. 
but he's always there. And so God says to Isaiah, go and meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jabob, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. So that's down there on the south side of the city of David. Uh, and say to him, here's the message, take care and be calm, relax. I know this, these armies are coming, but I'm going to take care of you. They're not going to take Jerusalem. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted. Don't give up because of these two stubs. That's a little imagery for these two kings. They're like smoldering firebrands. In other words, they look tough, but they're going to burn themselves out. They're not permanent. That's his point. On account of the fierce anger of resident and Aram, the son of Ramaliah. Don't be fearful. Because Aram with Ephraim and the sons of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in the walls, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So in other words, they said, here's the plan. We're going to go up and assault Jerusalem, knock the wall down, remove Ahaz as king, and put our guy in there as king. Now we put our guy in as king, then he's going to raise an army of the Judeans and help us fight against Assyria. So that's their strategy. And so verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. This is Isaiah's message to Ahaz. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, that's Syria, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, now within another 65 years, Ephraim, that, the, Ephraim was the main tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. They had become the most populous, and Israel was often referred to as Ephraim. So he says here, in 65 years, neither, uh, neither Syria or Ephraim or Israel will even be there. They're going to disappear within 65 years. So that is no longer, and they won't even be a people anymore. There'll be no nations of them there. They'll be different. There'll be other people there. Uh, and guess what? That actually happened. By 669, by 669, both of those areas were completely resettled by Assyria. They took all the leaders out of there and repopulated them somewhere else in their kingdom, and they brought other people in and planted them there. So the population and even the names changed as he, as he predicted here within 65 years. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. So the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. And the head of uh, Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Uh, if you will not believe, you shall surely not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. So that was his message. And then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, okay, that's what's going to happen in the future, and I'll tell you what, I'm going to be there for you. Ask a sign for yourselves from the Lord, your God. Uh, whatever it is, make it as deep as Sheol, that's underground, <laughs> or as high as heaven. That's a pretty good offer, right? <laughs> I mean, whatever you want, I'll show you that I'm there for you and I'll take care of you. You just need to come to me and ask me for help. Ahaz said, I will not ask. Again, very deceptive answer. 
His excuse is, oh, I don't want to test the Lord. That's completely deceptive. What he's basically saying is, it's too late. I've already made a deal with Assyria. They're coming down to help me. And he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you'll try the patience of my God as well? So here's Isaiah speaking. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign because you tried the patience of God. God is going to give you a sign. You didn't even want it. You turned it down. But God is still going to give you, again, plural, meaning the nation there, all of Jerusalem, all of the Jewish people, going to give you a sign. And here's the prediction. Here's the prophecy we just read in the New Testament. Behold, a virgin, and of course that would be Mary in the future, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Because the very thing we just read in Matthew uh, 1, verse 22, that was fulfilled by Jesus. And so what we're seeing here, uh, the near view of this is that Isaiah is going to uh, have another child, and he's going to say before that child uh, has the decision-making age of 12 uh, in Jewish tradition, um, everything's going to be changed here. The, you know, all this will be uh, different. So that's the near view of the prophecy, but of course the far view is what we're interested in, which is the Messiah, Jesus, his incarnation, his virgin birth. So uh, this son will be named Emmanuel, God with us. That's, uh, as I said before, a title, a description of Jesus Christ. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. And of course that's the, again, the near view prediction that Isaiah's son, uh, before he's 12, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Sure enough, within 12 years, in 722, Assyria had brought their army down and finished both of those nations off and were right on the border of Judah, the, the army of Assyria, just as he predicted right here within 12 years. And when that happens, the Lord will bring on you, on your people and on your father's house, such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. So it'll be a bad deal. It'll be a day of judgment. It'll be trouble. It's something to be very worried about. <laughs> uh, and so uh, you're not going to like this. You're going to wish you had trusted me. Verse 18, and it will come about in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly. God will call this army of Assyria to you to punish you. The Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They're going to get sandwiched by these two great nations. Jerusalem is. And they will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and all the watering places. And in that day, the Lord will 
shaved with a razor, hired from the regions beyond the Euphrates, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will be, it will also remove the beard. Have you ever heard of a, a free haircut? <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's going to give these guys a free haircut. He's going to clean them up. Now it will come about in that day that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and it will happen that because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. So there will be a desolation come upon the land. I know that's very cryptic. We're not, we're not too uh, in tune with curds and honey. <laughs> not really know what that is. But that's what he's saying. This army's going to come through here, going to make the land desolate. Uh, as for all the hills which used to be cultivated, so all this cultivated ground is going to be laid waste. Uh, it's going to be trampled. It used to be great pasture for your ox and your sheep, but now it'll just be trampled ground. So there's going to be uh, quite a, uh, a uh, judgment against the land because they turned away from God. So, again, Isaiah is clearly uh, very frustrated at the king's refusal, and so he gives uh, Ahaz this prophecy, uh, which is the consequence of his rejection of the Lord God. And as I said before, it has a uh, twofold meaning, the near view, that this uh, child conceived uh, by Isaiah in the future before he's 12 years old, the two nations will be destroyed that will be attacking them, and then God will call these armies from Egypt and Assyria, which will make the land desolate. The far view, though, since Judah and Israel have rejected God, the only sign they will get is the virgin. Okay, this is the history of Israel, of rejecting God. God takes the initiative, gives them everything, always reaching out to them, always gives them one chance after another, but the sign of their rejection of God and God's response to that is the virgin birth, meaning the only hope, <laughs> the only way to get you guys, the only way to save you is through this virgin birth. That will be the sign that God's giving you uh, to help you, to redeem you, is the virgin birth. And only through that incarnation of God himself can they be saved? Can their sins be atoned for? That's what he's conveying here in this prophecy. So the only remedy for their rebellion and their rejection, the only remedy or answer to their sin is this virgin birth that God is going to accomplish supernaturally, miraculously, this birth here. All right? Uh, now, I'm not going to spend uh, too much time in chapter 8, uh, it's basically a continuation, and he's going to be talking about uh, the consequence of a rejection and, and God's response to it. And so uh, jump forward to chapter 9, because he's going to talk more and more messianic prophecies in chapter 9 of Isaiah. All this is a continuance of Isaiah's prophetic picture of the future because of King Ahaz and Judah's rejection of God and move into 
they moved into idolatry. Notice before you get into 9, look, look at what they do. Once all this bad stuff starts happening to them, all these judgments of God, look at chapter 8, verse 19. Who do they turn to? Like I said before, it's not like Ahaz is not religious. He's religious. It's just not according to the truth. So what's he gonna, who's he going to consult? What's he going to try to do? Look at what he does. Verse 19, consult the mediums. Go to the spiritists who whisper and mutter. And shouldn't the people are going to say, Don't, should we consult God? And they go, well, we'll, we'll talk to the dead and the spirits and see what they say. See? Then people do that today. People have a fascination with that today, right? All the psychics, you know, the psychic hotline and everything. And you heard me say this before, but I've always wondered why no psychic has ever won the lottery. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and so verse 22 says, what's the consequence? What's the judgment? Distress, darkness, gloom, anguish. That's the lot of Judah and Jerusalem because of it. So chapter 9, uh, back to more prophecy about the Messiah. We see the Messiah's coming to lead the, the nation eventually into joy and prosperity. And that'll be, of course, at the second coming, the setting up of the kingdom. So in chapter 9, verse 1, we read, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. So all this destruction that he's been talking about now, way in the future, when the Messiah comes, no more gloom. In other times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, that's the land up around the Sea of Galilee. And what he's going to say here, they've been through some rough times there, but now God is going to send the Messiah, Jesus, to have a ministry there. And as you know, most of Jesus' ministry was around the sea of, on the north and, and uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's what the prediction here is. Uh, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness then will see a great light. When Jesus came into the world, John chapter 1, he says, Jesus was the light, and the light of God came into a dark world and revealed God, revealed the truth, revealed holiness and righteousness. And that's what Isaiah is saying right here. They'll see a great light, those who live in a dark land. The light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation, increase the gladness. So all, the, all these good things. And then look at verse 6 and 7. Uh, how? Why such increase? And why such gladness? And why such light and joy? Verse 6, for a child will be born to us. So this is like, you know, addendum to what he's already said about the birth of the, the virgin birth. Now he says again, a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. We know when Jesus comes back to set up the kingdom, he's going to reign and rule from the throne of David forever. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government on his shoulders, and we're given all these great names for him here. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Do y'all know, who could that be? Do y'all know anybody else historically that, let's see, there's, oh yeah, there's one guy that could possibly fulfill this, Jesus Christ. There will be no end to the increase of his government, or see, so this will be an eternal throne. He'll be on the throne of David eternally and rule over the kingdom. And in that kingdom, for the first time ever, what will you have? Justice and righteousness there at the end of verse 7. Forevermore. And how will it be brought to be? How will this be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God is most zealous in bringing this about. It is going to happen. So five facts about the Messiah. Uh, He'll be born a child, a son. He will rule the kingdom. He'll have four descriptive names that we just saw there, the the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He'll be seated on David's throne in an eternal rule over the kingdom of God, and this will all be done by God's intervention, God's zeal, not man's. Mankind has, has set up one kingdom after another, and they've all fallen. You know, you go over and look at some of the older places, the ruins like in uh, modern-day Turkey or Greece or in the Middle East, and what are they? They dig down and they uncover all these ruins from 2,000 to 5,000 years ago, and what are they now? A pile of rocks. Just a pile of rocks. That's all. But this kingdom that God will set up will be forever, be eternal, and it'll have righteous and justice for the first time ever. So, uh, going back to where we started, for the last 2,000 years, Jesus' humanity has been disputed or his deity denied, one or the other. That's been the basic source of, of argument. All the cults revolve around a wrong view of Jesus, the nature of Christ. They deny his deity usually. Clearly, the religious leaders in Jesus' day knew he was claiming deity. All through the Gospels, you see that they accused him of blasphemy, claiming to be God, and they picked up stones to to kill him over and over again because he was making himself equal with God. Therefore, the New Testament authors of Isaiah and Isaiah before them were devoted to establishing that identity of Christ, who he is as the God-man, 100% man and 100% God, which is so important to us because then only Jesus is qualified to die a perfect, vicarious sacrifice for our sins. He's the only one. He's sinless, and as God, he can make a sacrifice of infinite value so that all sins for all time could be forgiven. And so at this point, (laughs) uh, we might ask the same question as Mary asked, And in Luke 1, when the angel announced it to Mary, the virgin birth, she said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Because God takes the initiative and accomplishes the redemption of mankind through the incarnation. So the Holy Spirit came upon her miraculously. She was with child by the Holy Spirit. 
and Matthew 1.23 quoted Isaiah as being fulfilled by this great event. So the virgin birth is a sign that God gave that God is with us, Emmanuel, in the person of Christ, and he loves us, and he sent his son to save us. And Isaiah looked forward to that time as we do his second coming to set up the kingdom and the resurrection. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word. Thank you so much for these predictions, your prophecy that always comes true. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to save us. And we look forward to that day of his glorious return and setting up of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <laughs>